I'm going to ask Jenna to come up, and she's going to be reading two passages, one from Isaiah 7 and then also Matthew 1. So Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. Good morning. Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary of men, that you weary of my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Then Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you, Jenna, so much for reading. It'll date me a little bit, but I can still remember uh, the story, and actually watching it unfold, the story of baby Jessica. So it was a scene that unfolded in Midland, Texas in 1987. Uh, Jessica was 18 months old and fell into a well of a family member. And I remember this because I remember watching the news and watching reporters. This was before just like a round-the-clock news cycle, but it was like breaking news and every bit of attention of the whole nation was drawn to Midland, Texas. And I remember the reporters, and I don't remember every word they said, but I remember like the deep analysis of how did this, how did this even happen? And also kind doctors being called in, like what will it take for this child to survive? It's actually 56 hours before she was rescued from the time she fell in. They would analyze, like, what must her family be experiencing? It was a compelling rescue story, and I guess I've always been drawn, even now, I enjoy reading rescue stories. I'm guessing if you ask people what they thought Christianity in general and Christmas in specific was all about, if you ask that question, I'm guessing that not too many people would say, oh, I know what it's about. It's a rescue story. My guess is if you ask people just generally, what do you think Christmas is all about? You would hear something about, oh, it's family and it's friends and it's food and it's gathering and it's giving. And my guess is rescue wouldn't be in the top five anybody would come up with for Christmas. And if you ask people what they thought Christianity was about, my guess is that you would get some sort of answer from a lot of people. Well, it's about being good and being kind and trying to do the right thing and be the best person you can be and 
Certainly has something to do with God being involved in that and probably Jesus being involved in that as well. But my guess is very few people would respond, Christianity is all about a rescue. Who will be rescued and who does the rescuing and when it happens and how it happens and, and even why it happens. Maybe we don't think in terms of rescue quite as much as we should because we just don't think living in this world spiritually is that dangerous. So maybe that's why rescue doesn't come to our mind. But when you open the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, you are, you're reading a rescue story. It's much more than that. It is no less than that. It's a rescue story. And there are lots of little rescues where God comes to rescue his people. But it, it all fits into like one bigger story of God's rescue of people. God has determined. So this, this is what God has determined to show his glory to show how great he is, to show how perfect he is, to show how loving he is, to show how strong he is. He is determined to do that through a rescue story. He rescues sinners who will trust him with everything they have. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we read the story today, because we're going to start in Judah during uh, Isaiah's time. You heard that passage read, and then you also heard Matthew 1 read, so we are going to look at Israel and Jesus' time, but then we also will come face to face with what's going on in our time. Isaiah can teach you to ask a very good question, and Isaiah 7 in particular can teach you to ask a really good question, that is like, what is the situation? What is the situation? I, I want us to look a little bit, because you might have heard Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin will conceive and, and bring forth son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. You might have heard that verse, but I actually, I want to make sure we understand some of the backstory to that verse, because I think you'll appreciate it all the more. What is the situation? So I want to paint the picture of the time of Ahaz. So Ahaz is one of the kings. He's king of Judah, and he is the king who is under pressure. He is under pressure. It says in verse 1 here of Isaiah 7, so I hope the Bible is still open there in front of you. Let, let's look at it. It says, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, there are two kings that came up against Ahaz. So Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So even in that, you've got three different regions named. So what is, what is that all about? You've got Syria, and you've got Israel, which is the 10 northern tribes after the civil war. And there were two southern tribes, that's Judah. And so we've got Israel, and we've got the king of that, and we've got Syria, and we've got the king of that. And they come to Jerusalem to wage war against Ahaz. But they couldn't mount an attack against it. It's actually a really, really complicated situation for King Ahaz. Someone has said, like, when it comes to a world leader like this, there are no easy decisions they make. All the easy ones have already been answered. All of those have already, by the time he gets to the desk of a king or, or a president or prime minister, all the easy questions are gone. So King Ahaz has to deal with national security issues, his nation and the, the press against him. I want you to see a map and uh, don't worry, this won't be like biblical geography time with Professor Curtis or anything like this. But I do think it's helpful for, for you to understand just even what was going on politically in the world at that time. So you see the purple section, and that is Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. And this is one of the, the dominant powers in the world that is growing at the time. And you can see kind of their effort to expand in the green areas. 
And so you see even one of the names we read, and that was Syria. So see it up by Damascus there. And so Syria is a country that is feeling the press of Assyria's expansionist desires, all right? They're feeling the press. And so what, is, what Syria had decided to do was make an alliance with the people of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. So you see Samaria, that's the capital of the northern, kind of the northern tribes. Uh, it's said Israel in the Bible. So they formed an alliance, but what would make that alliance even better is if Judah would cooperate. So you see kind of that region in the brown there where Jerusalem is, that's Judah. And what would give them like a stronghold in the Middle East to defend themselves against Assyria would be if those three nations could come together and kind of form a, a power block. So they've got Egypt to the south, and Egypt always was threatening, and they've got Assyria to the northeast, and they're threatening. The only problem is Ahaz didn't want to do that. None of the Ju kings of Judah wanted to play ball in that. So, so you're kind of left with, with the struggle here. Ah Ahaz doesn't want to join that alliance. So Israel and Syria decide, we'll just remove Ahaz. We'll go down, we'll conquer Judah, we'll conquer Jerusalem, and we'll set up our own puppet king, and he'll do what we want him to do. So that's the scenario that Ahaz is dealing with. Do you side with Assyria? There's, that, that's not a good option, even if it's the one you choose. You somehow try to fight it out with Israel and Syria. What are you going to do? Is there another way? What rescue gets you out of this mess? We see what it does to Ahaz. Look at verse 2. It says, when the house of David, so Ahaz is, is a descendant of David who is, he's king. When he was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, again, the northern tribes in Syria are in alliance, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as in the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Thank you to God's Word for giving us an honest assessment of what's going on in the heart of a king. This isn't some Disney make-believe story or some Marvel three-hour movie where eh, everything's going to turn out in the end and the world will be saved. We don't, we don't know. Ahaz surely doesn't know that as it goes on. I've had stressful situations. I've had to make decisions for individuals that I love, family that I love. I, I've had to make decisions to lead our church in certain directions. So I, I know what it is to carry the weight of some of that. I have no idea what it must have been like for Ahaz to carry the weight of a nation. Could he, would he not have seen some dear aunt in, uh, and, and her nieces and nephews that she's caring for and his decision is going to affect them? And could he not see a, a grandparent who just wants a future for his grandchildren? Could he not see a, a mom and a dad? Could he not see teachers that all they want to do is just peace? They, they want to go teach classes. They just want to take care of kids. I mean, would he not felt all that pressure? I think he would have. And God doesn't just leave Ahaz to fend for himself and figure it all out. That's not the way God operates. Look at verse 3. I think we need to remind ourselves of the grace of God. The Lord speaks to Isaiah, the prophet, and he says, go out to meet Ahaz. Take your son, you and Shir Jashub. Go to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And this is what you say to Ahaz. You can be careful and be quiet. You don't have to be afraid. 
do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. You don't have to be afraid here. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, because they've devised evil against you, you don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid of their words where they said, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and we'll set up our king, Tebiel, in the midst of it. You don't have to be afraid, says the Lord God. It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin and within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Ephraim will be no more. It'll be shattered from being a people. You don't have to worry about this. It's going to be gone in a few decades. Don't be afraid of them. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And listen, tell him this. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. You're just going to get overwhelmed, Ahaz, if you don't, if you don't find strength and courage and faith in this moment. So here is Isaiah speaking about a rescue. You think you're in a bad scenario, but you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to worry. This is not going to happen. So we learn to ask not just like what is the situation, but we also learn to ask another question, and that is what does God command and promise? So when we're in the middle of difficult times, complicated things where we don't know the answer, we can answer this question, and that is what does God command and what does He promise to us? What does He command and what does He promise? God is showing love here. He's reminding Ahaz, I oversee nations rising and falling. That's on no one's job description except for God's. And he says, I do it. I oversee like the nation. So you do not have to be afraid. Here's what's going to happen. You don't have to let fear drive decisions that you may regret later, that may be to your own harm later. There's another path, but you're going to have to trust and you're going to have to wait and you're going to have to watch. And it's not going to be easy. But you can count on me. Verse 9 makes it clear. Like if you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. This is going to be an issue of faith. It will not be. See, I think if I were Ahaz, I would say, well, it's not an issue of faith. It's an issue of armies. That's what it's an issue of. I got to have chariots and I've got to have horsemen and I've got to have weapons. And it's not an issue of faith. It's an issue of strategy. We've got to find our way out of this. And so I need all the military advisors I can find to find a way where my nation won't get blown up. I would say it's not an issue of faith, it's an issue of money. I need money and resources to pay for like protection and, and maybe to buy off someone that will give me some protection. Maybe I can find some warriors, some mercenaries to keep us safe. And we have God's grace saying, here's what I'm commanding you to do in the middle of this rescue, and that is trust. You can count on me to deliver you leaves us with a different set of questions, doesn't it? If God speaks that clearly, then the question you and I have is, do we really believe God knows what He's talking about? Do we really believe it? Because if He doesn't know what He's talking about, then it's every man, every woman for Himself. Do we really believe that God has our best interests at heart? Because if He doesn't, then my goodness, we better get whatever we can, however we can, and just bolt it all down so that we don't lose anything. If God doesn't have our best interest, in, I mean, this is the question that Isaiah, that Isaiah is driving Ahaz to. Do we really believe that our lives, as we sang a minute ago, 
are for God's glory, yet not I, but Christ's glory? Do we really believe our lives are for His glory? Because if we really don't believe that, whenever, whenever God puts something in our lives that we don't like, we go, yeah, I'd rather pass on this. I would rather not deal with this. God, give me something else that I do like. And I'll resist everything that God sends me that doesn't quite fit with my agenda and my will being done. The Lord leans into the life of Ahaz one more time. And I hope you're seeing how this, how this story is unfolding because he has had indirect messages through Isaiah. I mean, they're very directly from the Lord, but they're indirectly through Isaiah where it's like, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. It's not going to stand. It's not going to come to pass. But now the wording actually seems more direct in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And I love the way verse 10 starts. It just dawned on me when I read it in the first service at 8.30. This is the way, like, the story of my life could be that first word again, 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 because I have moments where I believe and then moments where I doubt and moments where I know God's at work and then moments where I question. And again, the word of the Lord comes to Ahaz. Again, the Lord speaks to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. This is God speaking. Say, you go ahead and ask me a sign. How big should that sign be, you might ask? Well, let's do it this way. As high as the heavens, as low as the deepest part of Sheol. Heaven and earth. You want me to move heaven and earth? Ask a sign. Ahaz, you want to be rescued? I am going to rescue you. And if you need to believe, just go ahead. Ask me for a sign. Put your faith in me. Let me show myself strong on your behalf. So now we have a really, really direct question that's being asked of Ahaz, and I think also gets asked of us, and that is, what will I do? What will I do? Ahaz has this big moment. His life will be affected, but also other people will be affected. The future will look different because of the decision he makes. And you and I often don't bear the pressure. Like, I don't know of anybody in this room bearing the pressure of a, a nation, depending on what you decide. So none of us in this room are bearing that sort of pressure, that big of a decision. But this is so similar. The basic structure of this is the same kinds of decisions you and I make all the time. Here's the situation. Here's what God has commanded and promised. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Who are we going to look to for our rescue? Yeah, your decision may not rise to the level of Ahaz, but we know this ground. We walk this ground. We walk it regularly. So a story is going to be written. And what do we envision that story saying? Do we have a story where we get most of the glory? God plays a supporting role in that. Very important role, but a supporting role. And where the story goes, he helps us with the God stuff. But basically, it's a story where we're the hero, where we've made the the best decision where we've earned the most money, where we've garnered the most friends, where we've made the biggest dent in the universe, and everybody knows that we've done something. Is that the story that you envision being written about your life? There's another story that could be written. It's a story where our life is used to magnify God. A story where our life is used to show how great God is. A story where our weaknesses provide regular opportunities, not our strengths, but our weaknesses provide regular opportunities to say, look at how good God is. Look how big God is. Look how faithful God is. Not, not our strengths, but in our weaknesses. 
The story where we are nobodies and He has everything. Is that the story we envision being written? That's the decision where we decide, am I going to take the pen in my hand and write it where I turn out to be the hero? Or is there a different script? Man, sometimes I think, you know, frankly, Ahaz is kind of lucky here in that he has a direct prophet from God telling him things. And even in verse 10, it says, God spoke into his ear. Like, man, that'd be nice. Okay, I'm headed in the wrong path. And then God says, don't do that. And like, well, if I, God told me through a prophet directly, well, then I, surely I would do. I think I'm not so quick to think. I, I think I'm probably a lot more like Ahaz than I'd like to give myself credit for. But in the midst of that, do I not have God's word? Do I not have access to God? Do I not have access to any of God's commands or His promises? I mean, when I open God's word, am I not reading what God has to say to me? When I pray to Him and say prayers like, Lord, show me the way. Lord, show me my unbelief. Lord, I don't want to go to the right or to the left. I just want to walk in the path that you have given me to walk. Lord, show me my heart. Give me peace. Remind me of your promises. Do I not have access to exactly what Ahaz has in that moment? Through God's people, don't I have access to God's word as God brings his priorities to bear through other people when I meet with other brothers and sisters in Christ and they say, Curtis, are you going to trust in God in this? Are you going to count on God's commands and His promises? I know you're tired, and I know you're weak, but are you going to trust in the Lord through God's people? What if they remind me? You know, Jesus Himself has said to ask. So the Lord has given a word to Ahaz here, like, ask and I will give you a sign. And we have promises from Jesus to us. Ask and seek and knock. Will we trust? Will we hope? What will we do? Well, Ahaz makes his decision, and we read about it in the rest of Isaiah 7. In verse 10, what is Ahaz's decision? Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. There's one way in which we hear that and go, oh yeah, because yeah, you're not supposed to test God. But this is a different scenario than like trying to ask God to do a party trick. This is not putting God to the test. Ahaz has just heard God say, try me. I will deliver you. Here's the reality. God is calling on Ahaz to take steps of faith. And he's saying, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to put God to the test. It's a smokescreen of pious religious language. But in the end, he's saying, I'm not going to trust God. Why would we do that? Why would we answer the question like, what will I do? Why would we answer that question with the answer, I'm not going to trust God? I think Ahaz knows something deeply, and maybe it's something we need to just expose here today. And that is, if Ahaz relies on the Lord, then the Lord calls the shots. I, I know this tendency because there's a stubborn streak, and I know probably not everybody in the room has a stubborn streak. Lots of people are probably passive and pretty pliant. And, but there's a streak in probably many of us as well that we don't like to ask people for help. And one of the reasons we don't want to ask anybody for help is we know once we do, we're beholden to them in some way. 
We know they've got some leverage over us. And so we just, well, I'm not, I'm not going to ask because I know they may play the card. Oh, remember you asked. I'm like, I don't want to do that. This is what's going on in the heart of Ahaz. I don't want to depend on the Lord for anything, so I'm not going to ask for his help. Because if the Lord helps, then the Lord gets the glory. If the Lord comes, then he is God and he has the right to ask any question, move into any area of my life. He can shine a flashlight on it. He can begin a transforming process. And oh, by the way, the Lord always deals in terms of a relationship. And so what about that relationship? Is it right with the Lord? Have I alienated myself from God? Will my weakness be exposed? Will my helplessness be seen and evident to everybody? Sometimes it's just easier, like, I'll just keep my distance. So he moved, actually Ahaz does move forward in faith. It's just not faith in God. It's faith in himself to get the right strategy. Actually what he does, you can read about this in 2 Kings. He calls on Assyria for help. He has faith. It's just not in God. He has faith in the things he can control. He has faith in the things he can work out. Do we do that? I think we do that regularly. We'd never verbalize it. You know, God, I'm pretty good at taking care of myself. I'll ask for your help when I need it. I don't know that any of us like we'd fear lightning bolts might come if we said it that plainly. But there's something in our hearts that say, I, I know God's spoken, but I think I know a better way. I know he's pretty clear on this path, this lifestyle, but I think I'll do things the way I want to do them. I'll take my chances. Or I know God has called me to be patient, but frankly, I've been patient for 15 minutes. That seems long enough. Or maybe just the grind of wearing us down. We go, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I'm just tired of trusting. I, I'm, I'm tired of those kinds of answers. So I think I'm just going to take the bull by the horns, take things into my own hands, and we'll just see where that goes. We can even give lip service to God but can we really say we're relying on him when we never ask for his help? When thought number 17 is, hey, yeah, maybe I could pray about that. But it really hasn't occurred to us when the things that stress us out, we just keep continuing to like, oh, I'll work my plan. I'll think about it some more. I'll work my plan. Or do we cry out in desperation? Have we really based our life, our security, or our happiness totally on him or on our health or our position or our education or our, the approval of others. Sometimes we resist trusting and we rely and we carve out an independent way of the Lord. What we don't realize in that moment, church, what we don't realize is actually when we're going independent from the Lord, we put on the other team's jersey. Like we're saying, God, we're not with you. We're against you. Verse 10, God continues to speak through Isaiah. Or verse 13, sorry. Verse 13, he says, Hear then, O house of David, who's speaking Ahaz with implications for the whole nation. It's a problem that you've wearied men. Is it too little that you've done that? But you've also wearied God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
And now we have our verse, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we'll call his name Emmanuel. Ahaz, I told you to ask for a sign. You didn't ask for one. I'm going to give you one anyway. And here's what the sign is going to be. A son is going to be born right in the middle of international pressure. And this is going to be a turning point that God is present. That God wasn't distant. He's present. Sometimes prophecies like this are hard to read and hard to understand exactly what's going on because you can continue to read Isaiah 7 and even into Isaiah 8 and actually a son is born right in the middle of all sorts of international pressure. It's Isaiah's son that's born. And there really is a sign that God is with them, but God wasn't with them in blessing. God was with them in judgment as Ahaz has made the wrong decision and it will cost his whole nation. Things will be harder and worse because of Ahaz's decision in this moment. So there's a sign and it comes and it's filled with judgment. But when you, when you read that, you also read in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, there's also a word of hope that God's not done with Israel yet. God has a purpose and there is a remnant that will come. Someone will survive, even though the nation is going to be destroyed. Some are going to survive. And when you read this promise again, you, wait, you, you read, well, wait a minute. It didn't just say anyone will conceive. It said a virgin will. And so it seems like, is this a promise about Isaiah's son or is there another son to come? And then you read Isaiah 9 where it's, for to us a child is born, unto us a, a son is given. And you realize, I think Isaiah is not just talking about immediately a sign coming for the people of that time, but I think he's looking forward to something that we find out is 700 years later. And that is, a son is born to a virgin. And we read about it in Matthew 1, the Virgin Mary. We read that it is right in the middle of international pressure. But whereas Isaiah's son was a sign of judgment, this son is a sign of God's grace and God's mercy. As a matter of fact, his name, that's called Emmanuel, but his earthly name, for the young man that will grow up in Joseph and Mary's home, his name is Jesus, which just means salvation. He'll save, he'll rescue. See, this is the sign that all things were pointing to. This is the sign of a virgin will conceive and, and Emmanuel will come. God with us. Signs point to something. And here it's pointing to a Savior that will come. If you wait for the Lord, He will rescue. It doesn't just mean life's going to go the way you want it. It doesn't mean everything is going to get easier. It may not even mean that you survive physically, but it does mean that there is something bigger than what we see with our earthly eyes. There's something bigger than what, just what we can imagine with our earthly brains. There is a world that is just as real that we will only see by faith. It does mean that God loves and God saves. We won't be destroyed. We will be rescued. There is there's such an opportunity this morning, church. We can read this uh, story and think back of an ancient king that could have made a better decision. Or we can let it shine into our own hearts and it could, it could show us this independent from God's streak that we might have. Where we say, thanks for your help, Lord, but I think I got this. Thanks for telling me your way, but I think I'm going to do it my own way. And we could take that more seriously than we ever had before. And we could continue to grow in confidence that only the Lord can be trusted. The sign that Isaiah mentioned, this virgin conceiving, bearing a son, God with us, that absolutely changed the world. It changed the world. Jesus Christ came to this world. He lived a perfect life. None of us, none of us have lived that perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. Only he was qualified to do this. 
and He did it for us. He rose from the dead in power and victory, and He calls us. He calls you. He calls me. What has God commanded? What has God promised? He calls on you to believe, to trust, not just once, but to live a whole life of trusting, to relying on the promises. And He has promised that if you trust in Him, you won't be cast out. In Jesus, we're united. We've been united and and brought into a new kind of life. A future for us hinges on God's desire and initiative to save. He's proven. He has taken the initiative. He will save His people. The question is whether we will follow with a willingness to entrust ourselves to Him. We've asked a few questions today. Let me remind you of them, and then we'll pray. Question is, what is the situation? How should we look at it? How should we see it? And what has God commanded? What has God promised in the middle of a situation? And finally, what will you do? What will you do? Can I invite you to pray? Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us in this time of need where It doesn't always feel as cut and dry as whether we'll rely on the Lord or whether we won't. Sometimes it's foggy, and I pray that you would bring your word clearly to bear. Maybe it's through reading scripture. Maybe it's through words that another believer speaks to us. Maybe even before we leave today, it will help us discern our own hearts. Are we trusting in ourselves? Are we independent from you? Are we relying on you more deeply? Father, we read of a man that chose not to ask you for anything because he did not want your help. May we never be King Ahaz. But may we be the the people shaped by your son who ask and seek and knock, who rely on you for our next breath. Lord, thank you that you are writing the best story possible. And it's not a story that brings us glory. It's a story that brings you glory. And I pray that we would trade whatever stubborn self-agenda we have for a humble, submissive agenda to your will being done. And so we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.